Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Brandon M. Irby talks about Tougaloo College, a historically black college and university in Mississippi, his research on Emmett Till, racial violence and African-American survival practices, and navigating conversations about race and first-year writing. Brandon M. Irby is an assistant professor of writing, rhetoric, and digital studies and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. He received his BA in English from Tougaloo College, MA in English from Seton Hall University, and PhD in English and African-American and Diaspora Studies from the Pennsylvania State University. His research areas include African-American rhetoric, literacy and language studies, critical pedagogy, and rhetorical history. Irby's work appears in CLA Journal, Rhetoric Review, Spark, a 4C for Equality journal, Open Words, Access in English Studies, and Journal for the History of Rhetoric. He is currently writing a book about the activism, pedagogy, and legacy of Mamie Till Mobley. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. You went to Tougaloo College, a private, historically black college and university in Jackson, Mississippi. What was it like to attend Tougaloo and how did Tougaloo shape you as an educator? Absolutely. So, you know, thank you for having me on the podcast. I've been a fan uh, of this podcast since the beginning. And so it's an honor to be here and to speak with you. Uh, so, yes, I attended Tougaloo College in Mississippi. And I'm originally from uh, Saginaw, Michigan, a very small city uh, near the thumb of, of Michigan. And so it was really different uh, when, I, when I got to Tougaloo. Uh, but one of the things that I knew I wanted to do for uh, for my college study was attend an HBCU uh, because, you know, growing up, there seemed to be this um, divide for me in thinking about, uh, you know, education and what that meant. Attending my K-12 schools, I was often the only Black person uh, in many of my uh, classroom settings. And so I knew that I wanted to see what else was out there. And so for Tougaloo, um, what it did for me was it showed me that, you know, there was a way that you can, kind of, you know, you could center Blackness in an educational environment. And, you know, when I'm thinking about Blackness, I'm not necessarily thinking just about skin color, but I'm thinking about, you know, the cultural practices, food practices, differences in class, differences in regions. And so, you know, I from Michigan uh, was a part of what was happening in Mississippi. I had many classmates from Chicago. And then, of course, many classmates all across the state of Mississippi. And so while we were, you know, mostly all black, you know, in terms of like phenotype, we were bringing a host of differences uh, into the space, but also with the understanding that we were here to receive an education and to hopefully go forward in uh, particular careers um, that will, you know, bring um, uh, prestige or bring some type of community work back into our, our local uh, neighborhoods and things of that nature. So uh, for Tougaloo, it was really just this understanding that this is where I belong in terms of a tradition of education and tradition of scholarship. And, you know, the interesting thing about Tougaloo is it sits on a former slave plantation. Uh, so if you, you know, travel there, you can see that, oh, yes, this is a plantation. Um, you know, the the mansion where the, the slave owner um, lived is still on campus. And so that history is always with you 
uh, as you're navigating the space. But there was something about how that space was then repurposed into a college uh, that sat, sat well with me. And I think really just speaks to, um, you know, my entire, uh, you know, educational tradition or my, uh, I guess, arc of pursuing education after I left uh, Tougaloo. Brandon, you're, you're talking about navigating spaces. And I'm really interested in your transition from Tougaloo College in Mississippi to Seton Hall, a private Catholic university in New Jersey, and then to Penn State, a large Research One university in Pennsylvania. What was it like to navigate between these different institutional spaces? Yeah, so, you know, one thing that I will say is, you know, I majored in English at Tougaloo, and the English department there has a very strong track record of, of placing uh, their graduates into PhD programs. And so one of the things that I knew going in into that degree is that if I wanted to pursue uh, graduate level work, uh, Tougaloo would be a great place for me to do that. Um, and so, you know, there I was a part of this program called the Mellon Mays program, which really helps, um, you know, underrepresented students um, attain a PhD and then go on to, um, you know, become a professor uh, with a tenure track position. And so that really helped me kind of think through uh, a career choice, you know, as a sophomore in college, which I think gave me uh, an advantage um, at, at that time. And then I will say, you know, uh, one of the things that that program did for me is it introduced me to research, it introduced me to archives. And so in my junior year at Tougaloo, I was able to uh, spend a summer at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City. And in that program, uh, every single week or so, uh, we were able to uh, learn from or be mentored by various scholars um, across the country. And so one of these scholars uh, was a person by the name of Simone Alexander, who was a professor at Seton Hall. Um, and so I really got a, a, a good vibe with her. Uh, we were talking about her work, my work. And, you know, she asked me was, what was my graduate, you know, school plans? And at that time, I really didn't know. But she said, you know, if you would want to, um, you know, attend, you know, graduate school in like the Northeast, I would love to have you as a student. And so that's really how I got to Seton Hall. But I also knew that, you know, the English department at, at Tougaloo uh, would help me, um, you know, pursue the PhD uh, uh, after, after I left Tougaloo. And so with, with Penn State, you know, I was a, then a graduate student at Seton Hall and there was a, a, uh, a conference at Penn State on African-American literature and poetry. Um, and so I went to that conference, I presented and I was introduced to faculty members and students at Penn State uh, who also, you know, asked me about my research interests, you know, things that I was uh, invested in studying and encouraged me to apply to Penn State. And so it just seems that I was always placed uh, in a position where people were, you know, looking out for me. Uh, they thought that I could, um, you know, further my work at their particular institution or uh, under their particular guidance. And I think things just worked out how they worked out in that way. Um, but, you know, I was always, you know, invested in uh, going somewhere where I felt that I could get mentored. Um, and that was without, you know, you know, the regional dynamic. So yeah, from Michigan, I went down to Mississippi, went to New Jersey, and then went to PA. 
Uh, and so these were just places that I felt that I could get the most uh, out of uh, uh, out of my educational experience being mentored um, by these specific professors. Let's talk about your teaching. You're teaching a class right now called Remembering Emmett Till. Can you talk about this course and, and what you're exploring and what you hope students come to better understand? Absolutely. Absolutely. So first, my dissertation was, you know, on Mamie Till Mobley, who was who was Emmett Till's mother. And what I wanted to do with my dissertation is really show that this woman uh, was a rhetorical agent. And so we often see her as someone who orchestrated her son's funeral. Uh, with an open casket uh, to really show the world what racial injustice uh, could do. And so with that being one of the ways that we remember her, I started thinking through the different types of uh, other modes of, of rhetoric and rhetorical expression that this woman did because I didn't think that her story stopped there. And so what my dissertation did uh, was look at these different um, ways of rhetorical expression that made me tell Mobley uh, continued to do outside or in addition to her casket decision. And one of the things that resonated with me is that, you know, in 2016, 2015 or so, when I was starting to think about my dissertation work, we were right in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Michael Brown, all of these individuals um, we were seeing, uh, their tragedies, and we were seeing, you know, mobilizing efforts happening. And I started to, you know, connect, you know, Emmett Till in 1955 to what is happening in 2015, 2016, and, you know, 2020, 2021. And so what this course is doing is it's trying to introduce students to ways of thinking through racialized events and how we can not necessarily think of these events and these deaths and these individuals as you know simply victims but what is happening after the death after the violence i think with emmett till you know after uh, emmett till is murdered mamie till mobley said okay now it's time to act you know she said she had a job to do and she wanted to use that death to inspire others into activism into societal change and this is how i'm thinking about my course i'm really thinking that you know the death of Emmett Till, the death of George Floyd, the death of Breonna Taylor, you know, all of these deaths, they sit with us, they haunt us, uh, but they encourage us also to continue to do the work of activism and social justice and change. And so I don't want, you know, students to think of Emmett Till as uh, just a victim of violence, uh, but I want them to understand that, you know, he was a human being, he had families, he had dreams, we must never forget that. Um, and so it's really just this understanding of how we remember Emmett Till is not necessarily um, censoring the tragedy of his death and, you know, the injustice of his death, but what types of rhetorical work, what types of compositions, what type of uh, creative projects are being um, uh, performed and being produced to keep his memory alive. And so I think that um, for me, the idea of preservation and, and holding true to our memories of certain events uh, and cultural events uh, really help us with our justice work. And so what this class um, will hopefully do for students is to understand that if we remember Emmett Till in specific ways, if we would commemorate him, if we always remember what happened to him, 
this is a form of justice work. And so what we would do in this class uh, is explore our archival sites um, because I'm very uh, invested in, in showing students that, you know, there are certain narratives that we hear, there are certain narratives that circulate, and sometimes they're untrue. Um, for Emmett Till, there were many things said about him. There were many things um, that were, uh, you know, created to kind of justify what happened to him. And so I want us to go back to these newspapers, back to these interviews, so we have a true understanding of who Emmett Till was. And I think that also, um, you know, can help us understand how this narrative work happens in our contemporary, um, you know, in a contemporary sense. And so when we think about George Floyd, we think about Breonna Taylor, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, there are certain narratives circulating about them that try to justify what happens to them. And so it's a constant, you know, learning um, or unlearning um, project that I hope students will see when trying to get the narrative and the record right. And so I'm also thinking about, um, you know, these different uh, digital sites. Um, and so there's a, a great site called the Emmett Till Memory Project um, that really helps us see what happened to Emmett Till in Mississippi and also place, you know, sites um, in Mississippi and across Chicago. And so I'm hoping that students will see that they can be present in these historical moments and how the, his, the history is constantly informing our present. And so it's really just this understanding that, you know, 1955 was several decades ago, but what happened still haunts us. It still, you know, inspires us. The memory is still there. And as long as we are remembering who Emmett Till was and seeing the connections between the history and the, and the present context, um, that we can also use this to inspire more justice work. Your recent article titled Surviving the Jim Crow South, the talk as an African-American rhetorical form explores racism and the history of racial violence against black people. It also talks about African-American survival practices and conversations black parents have with their kids. I was hoping to give you some space to elaborate and talk more about this article and what you hope teachers and readers can take away from this great work. Yeah, so this again is, you know, um, I started thinking about this project within my dissertation uh, with Mamie Till Mobley, really thinking about who she was as a mother and how she was trying to navigate, uh, you know, different, um, you know, regional dynamics uh, when she decided to let Emmett Till travel to Mississippi uh, in 1955. So with Emmett Till being uh, from Chicago and then having to travel to the Jim Crow South, um, there were ways that Mamie Till Mobley thought about, you know, how he should, you know, conduct himself and engage in, you know, social, um, social dynamics during his, during his travels. And so I started really to think about this because Mamie Till Mobley uh, writes about how she had to give her son the talk in, in, in 1955. And this was important for me because I received the talk, you know, um, several years ago. And so I really started to think about how this is not something that is an isolated conversation, um, but it's a part of a larger rhetorical form uh, for Black Americans. And so what I wanted to do in this, in this article is really highlight the idea that 
Um, you know, rhetoric is not necessarily just a, an academic field, but it's a part of an everyday practice. Um, and with this everyday practice, of course, there are intersections with issues of race, uh, racism, violence, and death. And so with the talk, I wanted to highlight that it's, a, it's an important um, African-American rhetorical form of discourse, um, but I also wanted to contextualize it and historicize it uh, a bit more uh, in the article. And so with me, it's starting with this premise that you know, you know, black children are seen as older, they're seen as more threatening, uh, they're seen as uh, more likely to engage in criminal behavior uh, than uh, white children, for example. And so there are, you know, several tenets a part of the talk um, that take place, uh, beginning with, you know, I think the rhetorical concept of Kairos. And so black parents or parents of black children have to figure out when is the best way to kind of have this conversation um, because they want to, of course, preserve their child's innocence and make sure that they are able to live in a world um, that is freeing, where they can uh, pursue their dreams and imaginations. But they also have to understand that, you know, that won't be the case when they leave their home and they go out in public. You know, there, there will be perceptions of them that clash with how they are seen with their with their parents and with their families. So it's really a matter of timing of when this conversation takes place. Uh, after that, it's, it's thinking through, you know, rhetorics of anti-Black racism and violence. And so it's this idea that we live in this world that will see you as this. And so of course they have to respond to that, to that reality, but they also have to challenge it as well as, as what is something that I write about in the article that, you know, even though we're living in these uh, times where racism exists, there's a way that we can talk about it, you know, in a way that challenges stereotypes and these type of labels that are placed on, on Black people. And so at the heart of the talk is really just providing lessons and instructions and strategies uh, for really dealing with racialized experiences and encounters. And so what I wanted to do uh, with the article is just provide some case studies of how this uh, occurs or how it occurred in the Jim Crow South. Uh, so I discuss um, the experiences of Charles and Megra Evers, who were, uh, you know, who are known as two uh, Mississippi uh, civil rights activists, and then I, and I also discuss um, the childhood of of Emmett Till and what Mamie Till Mobley did uh, before Emmett Till travels down to Mississippi, and really providing you know context uh, for these talks. And what happens? What happened uh, during the, the during these times in Mississippi? Um, but I, I want to or wanted to emphasize that you know instead of you know thinking about the talk as just a way of teaching black children um, you know how to behave in the in the presence of authority figures like police officers, which I think is what the talk normally gets um, in our contemporary moment. I wanted uh, to uh, show in this article that it's uh, really uh, a genre about storytelling and how a history of violence and how the preservation of a collective or cultural memory uh, can inspire activism. And I also think that you know, this can help us uh, address traumas and acts of violence in the future. And so I wanted to show that the talk is really a, uh, a collection of memories. It's, it's, it's a cultural, uh, genre uh, for African-Americans to kind of preserve histories of trauma 
histories of tragedy, but repurpose them uh, for uh, you know future for future work. And so I, I think that yes, the talk is about survival, um, but really it's rhetorical efficacy. It's really in its ability to navigate different situations uh, of how Black families practice survival. And so it's not necessarily about you know do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Um, but it's a, really about how there is a tradition and how there is a legacy of Black people teaching and learning about, um, you know, the ways of a racist world and just simply navigating um, or implementing ways to uh, navigate this racist world. So it's yes, it's about survival, but it's also really about care uh, and nurturing. So let's move back to the classroom. I'm interested in how you have conversations with students in first-year writing about survival, about care, and about ways to navigate a racist world. How do you navigate these conversations and center African-American rhetoric and and Black lived experiences in first-year writing? Yeah, you know, I think I want to uh, go back to my time at Tougaloo for this question. And I think... um, one of the things that was kind of driven into me uh, when I was at Tougaloo was this idea that, you know, African-American studies, African-American rhetoric, um, these are legitimate, you know, fields of, of a- academic study. So it's not just about, you know, you know, what Black people are doing, but we can theorize them. Uh, we can uh, explore the tradition of, of Black scholarship. And so these are some of the things that I try to think about uh, when I'm when I'm teaching. And so I want to use my training in African American rhetoric uh, to enable students to see uh, that their time as a college student is not necessarily about consuming uh, information or you know consuming the content, but how they are going to use that to navigate their own experiences. Of, of knowledge production. And so uh, one of the things that uh, was you know, taught to me um, in my training in African-American rhetoric was that the field is, is about uh, you know, action taking, knowledge making, and community sustaining. And uh, it's, a, it's a community sustaining field. And so I want students to constantly think about you know, what can they do in their learning um, trajectory that helps them take action, right? We always think about problems in first year writing. We we start with the exigence. We start with this idea that rhetoric enables us to do something. And so I think African-American rhetoric um, as as a field, as something that can be theorized, starts with that idea of what actions can be taken. And so this is for students who are, you know, taking African-American rhetoric classes are just taking a first-year writing class, you know, that their writing can inspire change. It can produce action. It can shift how we think about certain things. And this idea of knowledge making, I'm always thinking about, you know, what types of things can you produce in first year in a first-year writing course, right? It's not necessarily about what I bring to you, but it's about you learning to be a content creator. And so this is something that, you know, students are not always they do not always understand, you know, in, you know, the first year writing course, because they come into uh, a college course thinking that me as the professor has something to teach them. 
And although that is true, I also want them to understand that you teach me, you can teach your peers, you can teach your broader society and community. And then, you know, going with that last thing that I said about it's a community sustaining field. What are you trying to do to invest in your communities, in your surroundings, in your local environment? So in whatever uh, assignment that I'm teaching, uh, for instance, I always ask students to think about their families, think about their neighborhoods, think about their hometowns, think about the problems that are there. Because, you know, as I was you know, speaking um, about my time at Tougaloo, for instance, you know, these things shift our understandings of the world. They kind of help us understand the world, even in their, their local dynamics. And so I think starting there really helps students understand the type of work that can be done in the college uh, classroom. And for me, you know, these are pillars of, of African-American rhetoric. And so what I will, you know, also say too, is that, you know, if I had to define uh, African-American rhetoric as, you know, these ideas of, you know, strategic practices of language communication, uh, things of that nature um, that, you know, African-Americans use to respond to, you know, issues of oppression or injustice. Um, I talked about, you know, these ideas of survival and resistance, but we can also branch that out to, you know, issues of community and wellness or joy, uh, issues of citizenship and, and freedom. But ultimately what I'm thinking is, what can you do in the composition classroom that allows you to dream or, you know, imagine different possibilities of thinking, of creating, of living, you know, and as a, as a first year writer, you, you may not be thinking in, in the class, uh, about the class in those ways, but I think it's helpful to get students to just think about how they can cultivate and create their classroom experience. And this is what I think African-American rhetoric is doing, is trying to say that despite these, these issues, these injustices, these oppressions, we can reimagine a different world, a way of, of, of possibility. And so that's how I want to think of myself as a teacher. And so, of course, with African-American rhetoric, I'm you know, teaching the texts, I'm teaching the, the genre tradition. But I think most importantly, it's really about the framework. You can think about your identity. You can think about the language that you use. You can think about your cultural practices. You can think about ways that you can better communicate in the, communi in the communities that you are a part of. And that there are ways that you can change things that you deem necessary. That can happen in the classroom. And so African-American rhetoric helps us understand, you know, that our personal experiences, they're important. They can speak back against dominant narratives and, and cultural understandings of what is right what is correct, what is professional, what is important, or what belongs in certain in, in certain spaces or places. Um, I love assigning literacy narratives, uh, supports the students' journey of learning. And so students are able to explore the material, they're able to reflect on their learning experiences, but then they're also able to compose in a way that demonstrates a command of the content, of the content from their perspective. And, you know, in this, this digital, a world that we're in, I'm, I'm constantly thinking through like available technologies of persuasion. And so I teach podcasts, I teach websites, I teach videos. And so just like we see, you know, people using their cell phones to, to bear witness to racial injustices um, or to document certain things, I think that type of work can happen in the classroom, right? Well, maybe the material isn't as heavy 
as, you know, racial violence, but being open to seeing how, you know, technology is helping students become knowledge producers and content creators. And I think all of that stems from uh, my training in African-American rhetoric. Thanks, Brandon. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.